We meet today in Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at verse 1 to verse 6. The church is a new man. And we're looking at the exhibition of that new man. We have now come to the new section of the epistle to the Ephesians. The subjects of these last three chapters are the conduct of the church and the vocation of the believer. We have learned of the heavenly calling of the believer. And now we come to the believer's manner of life, his earthly walk, not a worldly walk, but an earthly walk. The true believers, which collectively we call the church, are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Christ is the head of the body, and he is seated at God's right hand. But the church is to live down here on this little planet Earth. In chapters 1 to chapter 3 of Ephesians, we have considered the calling, construction, and the constitution of the church. In this last section of the epistle, we shall consider the conduct of the church, the confession of the church, and the conflict of the church. The church is a new man. In the future, the church will be a bride, and the church is also a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In the first three chapters, we have been on the mountain peak of transfiguration, probably the highest spiritual point in the New Testament. That is the reason we spend so much time in those chapters. But in this last division, we descend to the plan of living, where we confront a demon-possessed world and a skeptical mob. It is right down where the rubber meets the road. We are able to stand and walk through the world in a way that is pleasing to God. Our Lord Jesus said that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. So while we are in the world, how do we walk? How do we conduct ourselves? And how do we engage the battles that we meet? How do we even confess what is the testimony that is ahead of us as we confess Jesus Christ? Ephesians actually occupies the same position theologically as the book of Joshua does in the Old Testament. Now we come to the position where this truth is made clear. Joshua entered the promised land on the basis of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. It was his by right of promise, and he led the children of Israel over the Jordan into the land. Passing over the Jordan is actually symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We as believers have been brought into the promised land. Now, Having been brought into the promised land, Joshua had to appropriate the land by taking possession of it for the enjoyment of it and for blessing in that land. And possession is the great word in the book of Joshua. Although enemies and other obstacles stood in the way, Joshua had to overcome. A believer who has been brought into the promised land of salvation must also Encounter the enemies and the obstacles and overcome. 
But how? Through the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Position was a key word in the first half of Ephesians. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. That is in verse 3 of chapter 1. Position was the key word. We are in Christ. God has given them over to us. We have blessings. But are we walking with them down here on earth in possession of those blessings? The children of Israel had been promised their land, but it remained a never-never land to them until they entered it. Joshua 1 verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I give to you, as I've said to Moses. God says to Joshua, All of it is yours, but you will enjoy only that which you lay hold on. You will enjoy only that which your foot will tread upon. Up until now, the epistle to the Ephesians have been glorious declarations, but now there will be commands. Those who have been called to such an exalted position in Christ are now commanded to a way of life which is commensurate with the calling. My friend, the church is to make itself visible down here in the local assembly. It must be seen. We have come to the practical side of Ephesians as we begin chapter 4, the earthly conduct of the church. And this is the chapter the church is portrayed as a new man. A new man must be evident in how he walks, in how he conducts himself. The new man is to show himself down here on earth. The members of the invisible church are to make themselves visible. They are to be extroverts, if you please, and they are to get the word of God out to people. If you are not a Christian, God is not asking you to do the commands that are now given in this second section of the epistle to the Ephesians. First, you must become a child of God, and that must come through faith in Christ Jesus. You must become a member of his body. What follows in this epistle is for those who have been redeemed and have heard the word of truth. Dead men cannot walk, no matter how insistently they are urged to walk. You can speak until you are blue in the face. Dead men will not walk. They must have life first. The exhibition of the new man. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, Paul begins with this connective. Therefore, is a connective, a transitional word. It is in view of all that God has done for the believer, which we have seen in the first three chapters of the epistle. Because you have been called, because you have been positioned in a place of blessing, because that is your privilege, therefore you must do what is to follow. Therefore you must walk worthy of the calling. Paul is also a prisoner of the Lord Jesus. He is a prisoner because of his position in Christ. Isn't it interesting that Paul can be seated in the heavenly places in Christ and can also be seated in a prison because he was a witness for Christ 
to the Gentiles. This is why I highlighted the fact that whatever conditions you may be going through, you may be in prison, you may not be having all your supplies, but remember that your blessings and your place, you are honored. You are sitting with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul says, I beseech or beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This word for beseech or beg is the same word that we find in Romans 12 verse 1. In view of God's mercies, I beseech you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. It is not the command of Sinai with, with fire and thunder. It is the gentle wooing of love. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God. What are we supposed to do? We are to walk worthy of our calling. It is a call to walk on a plane commensurate with the position we have in Christ. Philippians 1 verse 27 tells us, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, Paul writes, That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1 verse 10. Paul points to his own life as an example of the Christian's walk. First Thessalonians 2 verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blameless we behaved ourselves among you who believe. What is Paul doing? He begs us today to walk worthy of the gospel. People may not be telling you this, but they are actually evaluating whether you are a real child of God through faith in Christ. The only way they can tell is by your walk. It's not so much how you walk as it is where you walk. First John 1 verse 7 But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is in the light of the word of God. How much time now, my friend, do you spend in God's word? Actually, your children know how much time you spend in the word of God. Also, your neighbors know, and the people in your church, they know. If we wish to walk in fellowship with God, we must walk in the light of his word. Paul does his beseeching on the basis of their calling in view of what God has called you to do. Walk worthy of your calling. He has just explained to the Ephesians that they live in the economy of the grace of God. They live under that dispensation. They have understood the mystery of God in taking both Gentiles and Jews and placing them at the same footing before him. It was because of his mercy. It was because of what he has called them to do. In view of that calling, walk worthy of your calling. And how is it to be? 
with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. Now, with lowliness of mind, with lowliness there, lowliness means a mind brought law. Paul practiced what he preached, you see. Lowliness means the opposite of pride. It is the flagship of all Christian virtues, my friend. Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambitions or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Lowliness characterized our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew 11 verse 29. Now there are too many Christians today who have a pride of race, a pride of place, a pride of face, a pride of grace, a pride of privileges. Some are even proud that they have been saved by the grace of God. Oh, how we need to walk in lowliness of mind. With all lowliness and gentleness. Now gentleness here means meekness or mildness. But it does not mean weakness. Now there are two men in scripture who are noted for being gentle or meek. In the Old Testament it was Moses. And in the New Testament it was our Lord Jesus Christ. When you see Moses come down from the mountain and he break the Ten Commandments written on the stone tablets... And when you hear what he said to his brother Aaron and to the children of Israel, would you call that meekness and or gentleness? Well, God called it that. When the Lord Jesus Christ went in and drove the money changers out of the temple, was that gentleness and meekness? It certainly was. The world has a definition of meekness, and that makes it synonymous with weakness. But the Bible calls meekness a willingness to stand and do the will of God, regardless of the cost. Meekness is bowing yourself to the will of God. With long-suffering, long-suffering means a long temper. This is the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5 verse 22. In other words, we should not have a short fuse. We need long-suffering, bearing with one another in love means to hold oneself back in the spirit of love, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Colossians 3 verse 13. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. You see, Jesus Christ prayed that we might be one. And Paul's statement here does not say that we make unity. It's not something that we make. We must keep it. It is a fact. It is already established. So let us maintain it. It's supposed to be maintained because we may actually not maintain it. Although in God's view, that unity is already there. The Jew and the Gentile are already one. The black and the white are already one. The women and the men are already one. The young and the old, the poor and the rich are one. 
but what is our responsibility? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That is why Jesus prayed that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. John 17 verse 21. The Spirit of God has baptized us into one body. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Believers are to keep the unity which the Holy Spirit has made. We cannot make that unity. We cannot join into an ecumenical movement to force a kind of a unity. Only the Holy Spirit makes the unity, but we are to maintain it. All true believers in Christ belong to one body, and we should realize that we are one in Christ. Now Paul goes on to list seven of those unities that we have. Ephesians 4, verse 4 to verse 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Seven unities that we have. I would like to enumerate and talk about those seven unities. One body refers to the total number of the believers from Pentecost to the rapture. This one body is also called the invisible church, but this is not wholly accurate. All true believers should also be visible. Then one spirit refers to the Holy Spirit who baptizes each believer into the body of Christ. The work of the Spirit is to unify believers in Christ. This is the unity that believer is instructed to keep or to maintain. One hope of your calling refers to the goal set before all believers. They will be taken out of this world into the presence of Christ. This is the blessed hope. Titus 2 verse 13, as we await the blessed hope, the coming of that blessed hope. One Lord refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. His Lordship over believers brings into existence the unity of the church. And we must endeavor to keep that unity through the bond of love. One faith refers to the body of truth called the Apostles' Doctrine. According to Acts chapter 2 verse 42, the early believers devoted themselves to the Apostles' Doctrine. When this is denied, there are divisions. There must be substance to form a, an adhesion of believers. This substance is actually correct doctrine. One baptism has reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is real baptism. Ritual baptism is by water. Water baptism is a symbol of the real baptism of the Holy Spirit by which believers are made one. Water baptism is simply testifying of that which has happened inside as the work of the Spirit of God. Then one God and Father of all refers to God's fatherhood of believers, not the fatherhood of all people. No, 
Since there is only one father, he is not the father of unbelievers. Sonship can come only through Christ. The unity of believers produces a sharp distinction between believers and unbelievers. He is father of all who are his by regeneration. Paul has been talking about the church, the body of Christ joined to him who is in heaven and at the right hand of the father. The church is a new man. It is a mystery. This is all true because it is in Christ. Now some people can be so involved in these truths who are, as the saying goes, so heavenly minded that they are not good for the earth. Paul is now trying to show them that we still walk down here in the very evil, very sinful world and let us make a difference. So in his discussion of the work of the believer, Paul speaks to the individual first. The individual is to walk in lowliness and gentleness. Then he widens out to the entire church, which is one body and one spirit. Finally, he brings this passage to a great tremendous crescendo, which pictures the eminence and the transcendence of God. God is above all and through all and in you all. This means that God is transcendent. He is above his creation. He is not dependent upon his creatures. He doesn't depend upon oxygen to breathe. He doesn't have to bring up some supplies from the rear or go shopping on Saturday in order to have food for the weekend. He is transcendent. He is not only transcendent. He is also eminent. He is not only above all, but he is through all and in you all. That means he is in this universe in which you and I live. He is motivating it and he is moving it according to his plan and purpose. That is what adds meaning to life, my friend. That is what makes life worthwhile. The church is to walk as a new man in this world. There is to be an exhibition. The church is to be an extrovert, to witness, to manifest life. But who is the church? The church manifests itself in individual believers. You are to walk as a new man in this world. You are to be on exhibition. You are to be an extrovert, to witness, and to show the godly life. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please write to the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park 1620, South Africa. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me give you that address again. It's the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa.